This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay. And today we have a special guest with us, Daniel Roddick, who's the head of market development at ClearBank. He's works at one of the biggest e-commerce investors in the world at ClearBank. And he's also a Forbes top 30 under 30. So Daniel, we're really excited to have you on this episode of the podcast. We're going to be diving a little bit deeper into how e-commerce businesses should be funding their growth, covering marketing expenses and scaling their business to the next level. So excited to have you to talk about all this good stuff over here. Really important for e-commerce businesses looking to grow. But before I keep running along, if you want to give a quick little intro about yourself and kind of tell us a little bit more about what ClearBank does in your own words. For sure. So yeah, my name is Daniel and I'm super excited to join you on the show today. As a side note with my last company, and we can get into a bit of my background in e-commerce later, I used to run a podcast. So excited to be on the other side being interviewed opposed to doing the interviewing. So thanks for hosting this. But uh, yeah, so at ClearBank, um, I oversee a variety of partnerships and relationships with all different kinds of players in the e-commerce ecosystem. Prior to joining ClearBank, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, building and selling two different businesses in the e-commerce space. ClearBank, uh, as you mentioned, is the largest e-commerce investor in the world. We've deployed over a billion dollars of capital in companies across Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., and our type of funding is a bit different than what you'll see through either venture funding or traditional debt. We are neither of those. We fund companies through a form of non-dilutive growth capital, where a company comes to us, connects their business accounts, and based on the data and only the data we read from these accounts, we project what we think the growth of that company will be and provide capital against that. It's a type of funding I wish I had back, maybe call it 10 years ago, when I started a subscription box business. You can essentially get your company funded within 48 hours in terms of the fastest cycles I've seen. And happy to get into that and some other fundraising strategies, which I think is part of our focus today. But for anyone who's curious to learn more about ClearBank in more detail, we'll set up a link. It's going to be clearbank.com slash DTCpod. And there'll be more details there. Love to dig into what you think your audience would be most interested in learning about. Yeah. So I guess one of the things that I'm interested in learning about, and I'm sure the audience is as well, is the biggest question I think there is, is when should an e-commerce startup consider getting funding? Like when's the perfect time to be diving into that? So yeah, there's going to be different stages of the business. And I think each one should come with its own type of funding. So today, ClearBank doesn't service companies that have no revenue. So if you're just getting started, that's where it's either money you've saved up from another job you might be working, or maybe raising a small round of funding from friends and family. That initial seed capital to take your idea from zero to one is something that you're going to have to raise on your own. But what's great about e-commerce, and if you pick the right products, there are, are creative ways you can kind of reduce your initial startup costs either by negotiating hard with your suppliers to reduce minimum order quantities or kind of other creative ways to leverage your equity to get the business off the ground. But as the business starts to scale, I think that's where you can start looking at cheaper forms of financing opposed to giving up equity in the business. And so that's kind of the gap that, that ClearBank fills where as the company is growing, you understand, okay, here are the SKUs that I know are selling. Here are the ad sets that I think are working. 
there's no reason to go raise equity financing to fund those things because the cost of equity is incredibly high. If you think about what does a traditional VC investor look for in terms of rate of return, an average fund, like a well-performing fund, probably is returning about 3x of their invested capital on average with the idea that some companies will do 5x, 10x, 100x of whatever money they put in. And that's really the thesis of how venture works. And so if you think about what's the cost to you, essentially you're trading off a 3x return on your own equity that you could have kept, but now is owned by someone else to do a one-time purchase of something like ads or inventory. And so that's why we developed our product is to kind of solve that problem where for a flat 6% fee, people come to us to get repeatable, fast capital, where if you know your return on ad spend, there's no reason why you should pay more than that to invest into that. Where I think equity dollars do become very useful or even more traditional debt like term loans, if you are thinking about doing much larger infrastructure investments, if you need to, let's say you're moving from a third-party warehouse to your own warehouse, if you are trying to do R&D or development on a new product, if you are trying to hire a new executive or hire an executive team of people that you think can take the business to the next level, then I think certainly there are other forms of financing that are worthwhile for that because those investments have an equally large rate of return. If you hire the right person, if you build a new facility, you probably are able to 10x your business on those types of decisions. So the cost of the capital to the potential outcome matches. And I think that's really the concept that I never thought about in the early days as an entrepreneur. I think a lot of people don't think about is how do you match the use of funds to these cost and source of funds to optimize how you run your business? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you diving into that a little bit deeper over there. So I know you mentioned a few of these as well, kind of while you were talking about, you know, some different funding options that e-commerce businesses could potentially use. So I wanted to dive a little bit deeper. Are there any other hidden traps that people should avoid when getting funded by outside investors? I think the way to think about any kind of investment of any sort is that the the most important thing is not the dollar amount or the valuation tied to that, but every single line in that contract technically has some kind of cost related to it. So to kind of get into some terminology, if you were to look at any traditional VC type of investment, you'll see terms like liquidity preference. So what a liquidity preference means is that if an investor has a 1x liquidity preference and they put in a million dollars into your business, regardless of what price the business sells for, the investor will always get their million dollars back first before anything is split with uh, the remaining shareholders. And so that almost puts a floor for them in terms of their rate of return and does affect what you can get back in an exit if you're fortunate enough to, to hit that stage of the business. Other things to think through, are board seats or board control, especially if you're moving from a company that has no board and it's you and your co-founders who run the business to then raising outside funding and having a board, depending on the structure of that board, who has what seats, what rights they have, that may affect your ability to make decisions long-term. There are things like veto rights that may give your outside investor control to say yes or no to certain decisions. Or if you've given up majority of the board seats, then they can ultimately decide your fate as the operator and CEO of the business. So none of these things are inherently good or bad, but there are, are, are things that most people are not used to dealing with or not used to understanding if they've never raised outside funding before. And so there's a whole other world of crazy financial terms I've seen, both on equity investments as well as more traditional debt, 
if you're raising money or receiving debt investment from a bank, very often you'll have this concept called a personal guarantee, which um, essentially means that if your company can't stake the loan in the event of default, you are personally liable for it. And there's different ways it's worded. It never says always you have a personal guarantee on this, but you know, essentially it'll be concepts like we have rights to all these assets and so on and so forth. And those are things just to, to be wary of. And you know, I've been on the operating side. Everyone's very optimistic that nothing will go wrong, but we all know that we're trying to build something new and that's incredibly difficult. And so our chances of success are not guaranteed. And so we have to think as much about the downside risks of these other forms of investments and just being conscious of the trade-offs you're making and the true cost of those decisions. And then, you know, if it's right for your business, by all means, take on these different types of funding. And, you know, that's just how we've chosen to differentiate where ClearBank has no personal guarantees. We don't take any liens on assets. We charge a flat fee. There's no compounding interest rate. And so that's why we're not debt. We're not a loan. We are simply a way to get capital based on your revenues and you pay us back as a percentage of revenues. And these are just all features that we've particularly chosen to solve for a lot of the things that us as founders, I think half our company have started businesses at some scale before, wish we had when we had raised money. And so that's why you just end up being a, a nice complement to other forms of capital. Yeah, that's awesome. And you kind of segued, I think, perfectly into us talking a little bit more about ClearBank, which is what I wanted to hit on as well. And I know one thing you guys do when deciding whether or not to give capital is projecting the future of performance for an e-commerce business. How do you project that? And how do you determine whether this business is really going to be something worth investing in and probably going to be having that really strong return? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So we really make all of our decisions uh, based on data. And over the past, I mean, the company's been around for five years. We've been focused on on e-commerce for more than half of that lifespan of the company. We've gathered a lot of data to understand how e-commerce companies perform. And so we have some proprietary machine learning models that we've built that essentially ingest the company's revenue data and ad spend data to predict what we think the company will do in the future. So for example, a company that has a 5x return on ad spend is probably going to be projected to grow a lot faster than a company that has a 2x return on ad spend because we know if we give you a dollar, you're going to turn to $5 of revenue versus $2 of revenue. And so that's kind of the basics of, of how it works. <laughs> I think you know, talking to one of our amazing data scientists, they could give you a very, very long explanation of how all the models work and the nuances of that. But suffice to say is, unlike a lot of other folks, and I've done it, I've raised equity before, have done rounds of venture debt. And the process for that is a lot more manual and static, where you take your prepared financials, you show them to potential investors. That's based on historical information that you've pulled together that every founder is trying to tell a certain story with that, where in our end, we're simply just looking at the raw feeds from in a read-only way from your stores and your marketing accounts to figure out what we think your future growth is going to be. And that's what our decisions are made on. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I love the data-driven approach over there. Is there anything that your team does specifically so when working with these businesses, I don't know how close the relationship is, but do you ever identify points of, hey, this might be something where you want to scale a little bit more, put a little bit more effort into where you see kind of the opportunity for a business to be able to scale even further? Yes, I think that's a unique thing about our form of capital versus some of the other revenue-based financing products that you might see out there. 
It is, you know, while the system itself is automated and companies who choose to just follow the automated route can apply for funding and, you know, take on new capital advances from us without engaging with our team, a really important part of our company's mission is to help founders win. And so that's not only through capital, but through some other tools and partners we have. The underlying infrastructure of all this is our benchmarking and insights tool, which every company can kind of see how they benchmark amongst their peer group. So if you're an apparel company, like I was listening to her podcast, the last episode, where you did a, a teardown of one of your customer sites, the Everbrand site. So you can imagine, as an example, Everbrand can come to ClearBank, connect their accounts and see how they benchmark against other apparel companies or other companies in the fitness or athleisure space on things like revenue, on return on ad spend, conversion rates, and so on. But on the back end, we also use this data to figure out how you rank against your peers and then can make recommendations on either partners or tools that might be useful to you to improve those. So we may say, hey, do you notice that your return on ad spend is in the bottom third of your peer group? Let's dig into why that might be. Here are some ideas of how you could optimize that. Is it potentially improving imagery on the site where they can go to trend, for example, to improve conversion rates on the site? Is it an opportunity to go international? We have a partner of ours called Passport that helps you optimize your international shipping spend. Is it failed payments? If you're a subscription box company, we have a partner called Gravy that helps solve for that. Is it ratings and reviews? Is it email marketing? So on and so forth. We have a number of agencies that can help if you need more humans to do something for you. Agencies like Meet6 or, or Thesis as an example. And so it really just depends on the nature of what the founder is trying to accomplish and what our areas for optimization, and we can make those recommendations. And then the last point I'll make is for companies that do need other forms of financing, we also support them on that regard as well. We have about 100 venture capital investors as part of our network. So based on the profile of your business, if you are trying to raise a round of funding, we have a sense of what all these investors are looking for and can narrow your universe to say, don't go on a roadshow and talk to 100 people to be rejected by 95 of them when we know the five that are probably the ones who are excited to talk to you and excited to invest in you. So let's start with those five first and save you the time. And so those are just some of the ways we use the data behind companies to help make recommendations. And when they're open to leveraging it to meet others, we use that as well to make some matches and recommendations. I want to touch on that last point over there, you know, since we are talking a lot about e-commerce funding, and you mentioned that your team has this kind of Rolodex of people that are willing to invest in e-commerce businesses as well are more likely to invest. Who do you usually recommend that option to? Is there certain things that you see within the business happening or whether it's like return on ad spend or what are those key indicators or what are those key metrics you look at, whether the business is coming to you or you're reaching out to be a little bit more proactive to say, hey, you should consider talking to this person for an investment? Yeah, so a lot of it is first driven by what is the investment thesis of a particular investor. So everyone will have their own flavors of it. There are what I would call your traditional VC that is looking for some type of breakout or outsized growth. And so the trends you're going to have to see at the company in that stage are businesses that are having month over month, quarter over quarter, year over year growth of a significant percentage, while probably also having pretty strong gross margins, relatively strong return on ad spend. Essentially, the story you have to believe and the investor has to believe is that this could be a 10x return potential on my investment doesn't mean every company delivers those kind of returns, but you can imagine if you're a $10 million revenue business today, you have to show 
the signals that very soon I could be a $100 million business, half a billion dollar business, billion dollar business, and just have faith that you can deliver those kinds of returns. Because if you're not able to, you don't fit the traditional venture model, which is there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's not matching the type of capital and the needs that the investor has as a customer. In this case, you know they're buying equity from you and they expect a return on that equity of a certain scale. You're not delivering on that customer promise of like, I'm going to be a billion dollar company. So you just find a different customer. And so that's where there are other types of investors or potentially acquirers that prefer more stable businesses that have predictable cash flows. They Maybe they're not growing 50% or 100% year over year, but they're profitable. They operate on a lean team and their business is, is pretty straightforward. And, and those types of businesses can deliver great returns for you as a founder as well. Like if you look at one of our venture partners, a guy named Moise Ali, who was the founder and CEO of Native, he sold his business to Procter & Gamble and it was basically funded all on his own. He had a very, very small team. You know, up until the very last few days, I think he was still running a lot of the ads in the business. And so that's just a great example. Another one is a company called Movement, which did watches. I think they entirely bootstrapped the business, sold to Movado for $100 million. So, and they retained most of the equity of the business. So all to say is you have to kind of match, like, what are your dreams and aspirations? What do you truly think this business can do? And then we'll find investors that match different types of profiles of businesses, if it even makes sense to raise outside funding. Or you can just look at what Movement did, Native did where they raised very little, if no outside capital whatsoever, bootstrapped the business and grew it to an amazing outcome. Spanx is another, another great example of that billion-dollar company, no outside funding. So lots of different examples of how you can uh, get these things started. I know you touched a little bit about some of the growth metrics over there. So I think it would be important to dive into those a little bit more. What are some of those, I guess, one or two key metrics that you're looking at that are really overperforming that you would say, man, this business is, is really going somewhere. I know you mentioned earlier that you know some investors are looking for a 10x return on their investment. So if you have a $10 million company, they're looking to get it to a $100 million company. So what are those key growth metrics and where do they need to be at for you to possibly even hit numbers like that? I think it has to start with fundamentals of the business of just really focus on unit economics and cash flow. So unit economics means, do you have a healthy contribution margin, first and foremost, over your COGS? And so it's hard to like tell you what a good number is because that varies by industry and by product and by SKU can and, and whatnot. But the higher your margin is, the better you'll be able to operate your business. And that really ties closely to your acquisition costs and ultimately your profitability on that ad spend. And so depending, and this is really where it comes down to like understanding your customer and their buying behavior. So if you buy, you know, if you sell something like a high AOV, few purchases in someone's lifetime, like a mattress or an exercise bike or something like that, you have to be first purchase profitable if you have no trailing economics in the business. Because if you're not, like it just, you might as well just not sell the mattress or sell the product. You know, if you're a product that's subscription based, you have a pretty good sense of what your lifetime value is. You can probably ratchet up your ad spend so that maybe you're not first purchase profitable, but your payback period is within three months, six months, 12 months. It really depends on where you're at with your business and what kind of your goals are and how much capital you have to spend. But I think that's ultimately the most important part of just like, how do you aspire to operate, if not very quickly, actually operate a very profitable business? Because that will give you control of your destiny as a founder. Cash flow is a very important idea to think about as well. And we didn't really touch to this too much at the beginning, but one kind of overlooked funding 
strategy, not only when you get started, but as you continue to grow the business is using pre-sales. So for example, ClearBank is the exclusive capital partner of a company called Indiegogo, where you can essentially launch a product, crowdfund the production of that product, and then essentially pre-sell and stoke demand for the product before you have to go build it or buy the inventory. What we've done is we actually give you the ability to take a certain percentage of that capital out of your crowdfunding fundraise and use it to run ads to further drive the growth of that fundraise so that, and you can actually do that again and again and again to grow your pre-sale volume. And so I've seen a number of businesses obviously get started doing that. I think it's an underappreciated idea to use to launch future brands. You can think of Indiegogo just like another store where you're listing your, going back to the Everbrand example, maybe they launch a new version of their leggings. That's a great thing where you should put that on Indiegogo, use it to expand yourself to a new audience, and use it to convert people to eventually become Everbrand loyalists while building up the cash flow and demand before you ever have to make an order, before you have to kind of do any of those other investments. So I kind of went on a tangent there, but I think that's like cash flow becomes very important for a business. You know, example of what we did, we ran a company called Luxbox, which is a beauty subscription box company here in Canada. And one of the key ways we funded our business was through annual subscriptions. So by the time we were about to sell the business, we had grown our annual subscriber base to 51% of our overall customer base, which meant over half my customers gave me one year's worth of cash to operate the business which helped us fuel growth without really raising any external capital. And so I think that's another idea you can think through. Obviously, you have a subscription business. Can you sell annual subscriptions, pre-sales? Whether you do through something like Kickstarter, there's another company out there called Vessi that has done this with their shoe launches, where they essentially copy the Tesla model of they're about to launch a product and you can pay, let's say, $5 to reserve your spot to get this product first before it sells out. And so that's another way to drive incremental cash for the business to just help invest in growth. And so I think if anyone's ever taken like a finance 101 class, you know, that's the cheapest form of capital is cash you have in your balance sheet. So how do you maximize the amount of cash you have is through things like pre-sales or annual subscriptions that you can use to build your operating cash and again, give you leverage in future operating decisions of the business. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the funding piece as well. And I know you talked about other ways to generate revenue and really go towards that profitability metric where you might have a lot more leverage as a business. So let's say you do decide to you know work and get some outside funding, whether it's through working with ClearBank or whether it's through an investor. So what comes next in that process? I know you mentioned that there are some unique ways to spend that money. I know you talked about possibly running ads to an Indiegogo project or things like that. So where should most of that money that you raise be going? Should it be going into marketing or are there any other smarter options to utilize that funded cash? I know you hit on one, but I didn't know if you had any others that you wanted to share with us. Yeah. So I'll kind of speak to first ClearBank in our world, and then I'll touch on the other sources of funding. I think ClearBank funding is built to really fund repeatable forms of growth and investment where you have a pretty predictable rate of return. And so those naturally are marketing and inventory. Inventory, you know how much the cogs are of your product, you know how much you sell it for, so you know what the return on investment is of that purchase. Similar with ads, ads is like almost just the standard tax now that you just pay to Facebook and Google, but you know what percentage of it is of your spend and you know what kind of return you generated on that. And it's you know, a kind of another standard outcome financially once you get the business up and running and have some predictability behind it. 
And so with ClearBank, we always suggest that you use our capital for those two things. On the marketing side, it's pretty straightforward. You invest it into growing the top line of your business. Since ClearBank is really focused on revenue growth of the business, the more revenue your business is driving, the more subsequent capital advances you're able to access through ClearBank. So it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of take capital, invest into marketing, get access to more capital, invest into marketing, and so on and so forth until no longer require external funding. On the inventory side, we have a unique approach where we actually underwrite inventory at the SKU level, which means essentially we can buy the inventory on your behalf, and then you will not have to pay us back until those SKUs start to sell, which essentially we've built a financing program for all your suppliers without talking to any of your suppliers, which is pretty innovative. So that is a, another use of funds that a lot of our companies use, especially as they go into the holidays. Hopefully everyone's having a great holiday season and selling through all their inventory, which means you're probably now thinking about, oh, wow, I'm out of stock and it's December 15th. I need to load up and you know, restock for January or into the new year. And so that's where hopefully we can start helping folks coming December into January. So that's the place where ClearBank Capital is best used. And we talked about Indiegogo. So if you are thinking about running a presale, please run it through Indiegogo because that's the uh, only platform we support. And then you can kind of get funding to drive marketing spend for those presales. When we start talking about the other forms of funding, whether it's traditional debt like term loans or equity financing, I think it goes back to my earlier concept before. While you can spend that on marketing and inventory, it's a really expensive form of capital to use for that. So you can imagine, let's say you raised a million dollars for your business and you sold 10% of your company for that and you have a million dollar PO and you spend on that million dollars just raised to buy inventory or your ad spend for the year is a million dollars, you're out. So yeah, hopefully your business has grown, you have some more cash, but to spend another million dollars, you don't obviously want to get into this fundraising cycle of selling 10% of your company over and over and over and over again to fund the business. So that's why we think it doesn't make any sense. So instead, take those equity dollars if you are going down that path and use that to invest in infrastructure improvements to the business, whether that's your team, whether that's facilities, whether that's new products, whether that's trying to figure out resources to launch into a new market. Kind of a lot of stuff I was saying earlier. That's how I'd match your cost of funds to the outsized outcome of what those funds can return for you. Yeah. And so talking about where to invest your funds... I know you mentioned if you're giving away a percentage of your company, you might want to consider not using all of those funds for marketing dollars. But I want to circle back to just the overall places to invest. So we talked about marketing, we talked about inventory. Are there any other overlooked areas in your business that are worth investing in that people might not think of initially? Maybe I'll drill in first into marketing itself because it's like a broad bucket. I think one concept that it's something I only really was exposed to through one of our other venture partners, a guy named Jesse Horowitz, who started Hubble Contacts. And so it may not be new to anyone else, but I, I thought it was an interesting way to think about how you de tactically deploy your marketing budget is very much thinking about not what your average customer acquisition cost is, but what the marginal cost is of your incremental dollars. So let's say your marketing budget today is $10,000 and you're getting a $100 customer acquisition cost, and you double that ad spend, and maybe your ad costs on average goes up slightly, but if your marginal cost of doubling is, is substantially higher, all of a sudden your unit economics might be out of whack where the first 100 customers you acquired are very profitable, but the second 100 customers cost you a lot more to acquire them. 
And so it becomes a lot more concerning that can you support this growth and investing to this channel. And so that's where I would very much pay attention to marginal costs. And you know, once you see that your marginal costs are creeping up above and beyond what you've budgeted to spend to acquire a customer, then that's where I would start looking at alternative channels, whether, okay, first, if you're on Facebook and Google, you got to make those work. If those aren't working, you're kind of shooting yourself off from a pretty big and important storefront for your business. But after that, I think influencer marketing for the right businesses makes a lot of sense. At larger scale, some companies seeing a lot of success through TV. NBC, for example, has built a direct-to-scale team that's made it a lot easier for direct-to-consumer brands to buy direct response or premium over-the-top TV advertisement, which still has an audience. People still watch TV. And so maybe while you and I don't watch TV and have cable, there's still a whole bunch of people, especially in the U.S., who do. So I wouldn't really ignore that. And then I come from the world, uh, my last company focused on building a direct mail marketing channel for D2C brands. And again, for the right companies, that channel worked quite well. And it's really, you know, companies that had some repeatable economic subscription type businesses always seem to work the best. And you can use direct mail in a couple of different ways. One, it's for just direct acquisition. But I think an overlooked as well is using it to retain or reduce churn or bring people back. So there's a company called Pebble Post that has been used by quite a few companies to retarget customers that visit your site with direct mail. So it's a way to kind of break through the noise and reach someone in their mailbox. And so I think you can't get too fixated on one or two channels and stake your whole business on that. And the early days focus is certainly important. But you also have to keep an eye on what are the other channels out there that have sufficient scale that if it works, that I can pour a significant amount of money to and have faith that grow my business and consider testing those throughout the journey. So there's just like a lot of other tactics that a lot of people don't leverage. And those become important, I'd say, in the phase two, phase three of the growth of the business once you've kind of figured out how Facebook and Google work, because those are ultimately, at least the way the world is today, that's where you're going to have to spend a lot of your dollars to see success. And I really like the way that you kind of explained over there that it does, to a degree, depend on what your business is doing. You mentioned that you used to do direct mail, but maybe that's not the best fit for everybody. There are a lot of good strategies out there. And I think, as you mentioned, it does kind of depend on what your business is doing and where your audience is at. And that makes a lot of sense over there. So I want to ask this one final question as we're kind of wrapping things up over here. What kind of mistakes do you see e-commerce owners doing the most with funding money? I know we've talked a lot about where you should place them, but where are some of the wrong places that people have placed them and really not benefited from it? I think actually see a lot of founders leave money on the table by not taking funding when the business economics say they should. So an example of this will be you have a really, really strong return on ad spend, have decent amount of cash in the bank, and we'll run into companies that say, hey, like, thanks so much for the help, but I, you know, I'm not really looking for funding. I don't need it today. I'm on track for my plan. And again, I'm not saying everyone should take external capital to do crazy growth of the business, but in the scenarios where you can support it, where you have substantial inventory, where your business can support the scaling, our question to them is, if you can, let's say your target theoretical numbers is to hit $15 million in sales next year, and you're on track to doing $12 million this year. But by taking some external funding, you're able to hit that $15 million target now. Our question is, why wait? Why leave money on the table? Why delay your eventual goal if the math proves out? And you know, here are some examples of like inventory I think is really easy to understand. So let's say you're eligible for enough capital with ClearBank where you can double the amount of inventory you buy at one time. 
and you're confident that you know your economics well enough that inventory will sell through. So it's not a crazy purchase, just you've been cash constrained to do it. The cost of doing that with ClearBank is a flat 6% fee. Often, if you're doubling your inventory spend, you're going to save a lot more than 6%. You can probably negotiate with your supplier to save at minimum 7%, if not 10%, 20%. Like It obviously depends on the relationship with your supplier. But why wouldn't you make that trade? Pay 6% to save 20% on COGS is a crazy good math equation. And I think a lot of people get worked up on wanting to be fully independent and fully bootstrapped. And when you're selling a piece of your business that's permanent, by all means, be very careful with that. But when it's more of a mathematical trade-off, I think that's where folks kind of underestimate what they can do with additional capital and just leave money on the table when they're poised to grow. And especially now, when you think about what's been happening with e-commerce, we've seen an incredible acceleration where what we thought would happen over three years happened in the first eight weeks of the spring, summer. And so the world just become a lot more competitive. There are a lot more players, a lot more people starting businesses. And so more important than ever, it's important to try to gain market share amongst your peer set, try to build your brand, and hopefully try to build a moat faster than everyone else. Because ultimately, everyone you're competing with is really smart. Everyone you're competing with is trying to build a great brand. Everyone you're working with aspires to have high quality products. What's in your control? How fast do you move? And what type of decisions that you're making? And so not using external capital as a competitive advantage, I think, is uh, missed by some founders. And again, only for the ones whose businesses can really support the scale and can grow. Otherwise, I'm incredibly supportive of people focusing on the fundamentals, making sure the unit economics of the businesses are sound, they know their product is strong before pouring on a lot of dollars to grow. But that's an interesting common thing I've seen people run into and not understand in some of our conversations. I really like that. So I guess my big takeaway was their unit economics makes sense. Why not get a little bit of extra capital if you can pour a little bit of fuel onto the fire? And if not, keep working on on those unit economics to make sure they make sense. But that was really helpful. And I appreciate you diving into that over there. Daniel, it's been an incredible podcast. I've learned a lot. I know the audience will have learned a lot. Before we leave over here, I do want to give you an opportunity if you want to share where people can get in touch with ClearBank, where people can connect with you guys and maybe even connect with you as well before we head out. No, I really appreciate that. And again, thanks so much for having me on. It's fun to be on the other side of an interview. It makes me want to restart my own podcast. But if you want to learn more about ClearBank, I recommend you go to clearbank.com slash pod. Oh, we set up that link just for you guys. It's clearbank.com slash pod. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Daniel Roddick, R-O-D-I-C, or you can email me at daniel.r at clearbank.com. And uh, you know, happy to answer any questions uh, and you know, introduce you to different folks on our team, depending what you're looking for. But, you know, As you're probably when this airs, I think it'll be leading into the holidays. So I imagine you're in the last final stretch of you know what is normally the most stressful time of year for anyone in e-commerce and retail. So I just say good luck in your sprint till holidays where hopefully you can take a few minutes to breathe and relax. And we're here to help and support however we can once you're interested in thinking about 2021. So thank you again for, for taking the time and having me on the show. Awesome, Daniel. Well, thank you for joining us. We really enjoyed having you on here. Thank you for everyone to the audience that's listening over here. If you enjoyed this episode of the DTC pod, Feel free to drop a quick rating, subscribe to the podcast, and we will see you on the next episode.